My name is Maggie Bell, and I'm an assistant curator at the Norton Simon Museum. My current exhibition, The Expressive Body, Memory, Devotion, Desire, 1400 to 1750, explores the physical and emotional impact of representations of the human body and the historical role of the five senses in experiencing works of art. This series of conversations with scholars in the fields of art education, literature, and anthropology brings these themes into the present by addressing the role of the body and the senses in engaging with art today. Today, I'm delighted to introduce David Howes, who wears several hats as a professor of anthropology at Concordia University, Montreal, as the co-director of the Center for Sensory Studies, CSS, and as adjunct professor in the Faculty of Law at McGill University. David is also the principal investigator for the multi-year interdisciplinary research initiative, Explorations in Sensory Design, which among other contributions, examines the senses as design elements that fundamentally shape experiences of public space. His forthcoming book, The Sensory Studies Manifesto, tracking the sensorial revolution in the arts and human sciences due out this year, offers a sweeping account of the history, methods, and scope of sensory studies. David's interests are wide-ranging, as is evident in his numerous publications that have explored the cultural life of the senses in a variety of contexts, from museums to marketing to law. In my own research for the Expressive Body Exhibition, I was particularly drawn to David's investigations into the roles of hearing, touch, smell, and even taste in museums and similar spaces, which present important challenges to the assumed primacy of vision in these institutions. In thinking about the array of your areas of expertise, anthropology, history, sensory studies, law, I have two questions. First, what is the connection between the study of law and the study of the senses? And second, and, and perhaps much more broadly, what is sensory studies? Well, thank you for these questions. And, and thank you, first of all, for a wonderful exhibition, though I've only been able to visit it online uh, through the video. Nevertheless, it's uh, put me uh, in a time period that I love and, and appreciated so much your curation of this wonderful collection of objects. So I didn't think there was any connection between the study of law and the sense and the study of the senses either when I started. But a few years ago, I, I got funding for a project on law and the regulation of the senses and discovered that the senses are everywhere in law, beginning with the image of Lady Justice with the blindfold. What's the blindfold about? What's the scales about? What is the, the sword about? It's very sensory. Sensory studies is an area that grew out of what I called the sensory turn or the sensory revolution in the humanities and social sciences in the early 1990s, when anthropology and history started turning to the senses, both as object of study and means of inquiry, asking questions like, you know, has the order of the senses shifted in history? Does it change across cultures? Are there some cultures, for example, that are more ear-minded than others because they are so-called oral cultures? 
Do literate societies have a visual bias because writing or print appeals more to the eye than uh, any other sense, obviously? Uh, but you know, what kinds of varieties of sensory experience exist, both in history um, and across cultures? So at the Center for Sensory Studies, we have 18 faculty members. They're from a broad array of disciplines, anthropology, sociology, communication studies, art history, and design art. And we have one token psychologist as well. Um, and he has to bear the brunt of our many criticisms uh, of his discipline. And he does so very well. He gives as good as he gets. And there are four main areas to our research. One is the social life of the senses. So not the mental life of the senses, but the, the social life, multi-sensory aesthetics, sensory design and marketing, and finally, alternative technologies of sensory communication. What are the possible ways in which, for example, this um, Zoom conversation could have a smell track or could have a taste track? You know, why have those senses been excluded from our technologies of communication? Can they be put in? How should they be put in? But to me, um, I'm both an anthropologist and um, I dabble in history as well. You raise so many important points that I know we'll get into over the course of the conversation, but the one that that resonates with me the most was in reading your work and thinking about the exhibition was that the senses are not frozen in time. They're not monolithic for everyone. And, and that was something I was hoping to convey is that these these works would have been touched and smelled, etc. And and that was something that I found so fascinating. Before reading your work, I hadn't actually really thought about a systematic approach to understanding the history of the senses, which feels so ephemeral even even now and it you know in the present moment. And so I wanted to ask you to speak a little bit more about how do you how do you do the history of the senses? What kind of evidence do you look for when you're doing that work? Mm -hmm. The history of the senses, it seems an impossible task. A sound is here and it's gone. An aroma is here and it's gone. The senses vanish instantly. Uh, and so one really has to develop a special set of skills to, to investigate them. As an anthropologist, it's comparatively easy. Uh, I'm with the people I'm studying and I can smell and see and taste alongside of them. I can share in the sensible. How does a historian do it? Well, there's a couple of techniques. One of those is what we call sensing between the lines of written sources. Okay, so we all know about reading between the lines, but sensing between the lines is inferring what kind of sensations are behind the descriptions. And you know, in that regard, it's especially good to look at travelers' accounts. Somebody from Germany goes to England and they will describe all the strange habits of the British, which the British are not aware of because it's just the way they lead their lives. So that's sensing between the lines. Um, going to the places and experiencing them in person is actually very helpful with respect to fleshing out a text. So if you're interested in the Renaissance, well, you just have to go to Venice and Florence. Uh, there's no other way uh, to study them properly. And that you know, physical presence can also inform the senses. That's such a nice segue into the productivity or the productive nature of 
incorporating all five senses and understanding the world. And and I guess we could look at it in the in the sort of microcosm of the museum, because you've been involved in, in so many research projects around the museum and in the multisensory potential of museums. Uh, for instance, you've worked on one called the Sensory Museum and another the Hands-On Museum. And so I, I want to ask, what have you learned about the function of the senses in museums of the past and were certain senses privileged over others in the scope of your research on the sensory life of museums? Okay. I think the sensory life of museums is absolutely fascinating and it's uh, especially interesting from this sort of archaeological perspective. You know, today, the ideal museum is often referred to as a white cube. It's a purely neutral atmosphere, and this is considered the best way in which to exhibit the paintings and uh, also the sculptures within it uh, through that neutral atmosphere. So nothing interferes with or detracts from the art. Also, you know, there's this phenomenal bureaucratization of the senses that goes on in the way in which, for example, you go to an art gallery or a museum to see, to a concert hall in order to listen, to a restaurant to taste or to, d to dine, and to a gym to exercise. Okay, so all these different bodily uh, operations are confined to different um, contexts, different spaces. By contrast, you know, early museums were sensory gymnasia. I think there's no other way to put it. And I'm thinking of places like the Ashmolean that was established in 1683 in Oxford and, and elsewhere. And you find um, accounts of people, you know, hefting all kinds of objects to see just how heavy they are, shaking them to find out if there's anything inside of them, gnawing on them to taste them. Um, and why would they want to taste things, you know, natural items and, and also other items? Well, actually, it was because, you know, before Lavoisier, chemistry, you know, was... Um, a chemical science and the chemical sense is taste. I would also you know, say that um, when we think about uh, the artwork that, for example, you've brought together um, in this wonderful exhibition, um, you know, that art would not obviously have been exhibited in a museum. Um, it, if it consisted of religious statuary or paintings, it was exhibited in churches, typically, as you also note. You know, tapestries were wall hangings and um, many paintings would have hung in dining rooms and galleries of the, the houses of the nobility. So, you know, th it was not the white cube, it was far from it. And maybe especially as regards the religious art that you've brought together. Um, a very interesting uh, example of just this issue was raised when they had the Treasures of Heaven exhibition at the British Museum. And they brought together numerous relics and the beautiful reliquaries within which they were set and icons from Byzantium and elsewhere in, in the eastern parts of Europe and put them on display. Now the visitors included people of the Eastern Orthodox faith and in that faith the proper way in which to venerate an icon is to kneel before it, to pray before it and to kiss it. Now was the British Museum going to allow visitors to kiss this exhibition, the, the items in this exhibition? Or actually, 
shouldn't the British Museum have obliged everyone to do so? Um, you know, merely viewing such icons from a distance and not engaging in that sensory interaction with them would be to defeat their sensory presence, their way of being in the world. And so, you know, I would love to see uh, more experimentation with historically appropriate manners of viewing. It's, it's really like a, a great and exciting challenge for museums to think about how to present these works in, as you say, some kind of um, culturally specific way that unlocks their meaning in, in ways that the museum as it is now just can't, that isn't, it isn't doing. You know, I think that uh, our sense of vision is very disincarnate, which may have something to do with the nature of vision itself. But as you bring out, uh, you know, uh, people um, from a glance could be affected by paintings. Um, a couple that wanted a lovely child uh, you know, should look at a, 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 you know, sort of a painting of a, a handsome couple or, or this kind of thing, that there were all kinds of ways in which, you know, sight had a tactile dimension. Now, sight still has, you know, a tactile dimension. Somebody can look at you with daggers, okay? And if looks could kill, okay? These are expressions that still survive, um, but I think they had a materiality during the period that you're looking at. Um, that you know, we need to sort of really appreciate more fully. That's such a good point about uh, looks could kill, looking with daggers. I love that. I didn't make that connection before, but these sort of constructions persist today in lots of, of ways that I find really interesting that this uh, sterilization and segregation of the senses happened on these institutional levels. But it seems like in practice there's still quite a bit of fluidity in day-to-day in -day life. I think there is, you know, and uh, really, uh, I think that, you know, too often there is this kind of sterilization that goes on um, and, you know, separation and Zoom conferences are a prime sign of that. And the COVID, the way it, it targets taste and smell. Okay, how insidious, how insidious is that? So, you know, we've been deprived more than ever of our corporeal senses in the last while. How do we bring them back? And what kind of experiments should we do uh, in order to bring them back? And here I think art museums have a great role to play. And one of the reasons, okay, is that, you know, we've expanded the definition of art in all kinds of interesting ways. I agree. I, I think that this moment is such an important one in which to explore how the museum, how art museums can connect people with their bodies and with each other. So in that vein of, of trying to find successful ways to do this, I, I wonder if you could point us in the direction of projects that you've seen that have done this really well. One I will just start off with is at the Toledo Museum of Art, they offer baby tours. Now, I think um, this is actually not so much for the benefit of the toddlers as for their, their moms or caretakers who have a chance to socialize. But get them young, okay? Get them going to museums really young. But the other thing is that it is, you know, mostly children's museums and science museums that, for example, have had a strong hands-on component. Now, um, I'm a little bit worried about that, okay? The reason that you reach out to children 
through the sense of touch is because touch is an infantile sense okay it's a it's less valued than sight as you grow up you should grow out of touch and into sight right um well wrong okay why do we value sight and touch in that way why not reverse it and why not think that tactile sophistication tactile literacy is important so you know the idea that well you can reach children through the sense of touch because it's a more primitive sense this is just wrong um, and actually you know how can we develop that sense of touch more fully in that regard I was always very impressed by the handling tables at the British Museum you have all of these you know treasures um, specimens and so forth in glass cases but you also have this handling table where a docent at four o'clock each afternoon will bring out a series of objects and visitors can handle them and one of the times I was there, there was um, a little figurine of Ganesh, the elephant, elephant of, of Hindu religion. Um, there was a bit of wrapping from a mummy, and everybody wanted to touch that um, for the ghoulish reasons of I don't know what. Um, there was also um, a carved wooden pig that was used as a token of exchange in, in Micronesia. And there was this hand axe, okay, from the Pleistocene era. And so, you know, we were encouraged to make these very creative associations uh, between that object and objects in our everyday life. So maybe I can just say something that we've been doing um, at the Center for Sensory Studies has been the creation of what we call performative sensory environments. And these are like exhibitions, but without any objects, only qualia, okay, only sensations. And so, in one instance, we sought to simulate the synesthetic cosmology of the Desana people of Colombia, who ingest hallucinogens and uh, ascribe great truth and value to those hallucinations. And so, um, you know, there were there was a soundtrack, and there was a, a light track, and there was things to smell. There were things to taste there was a revolving platform and there was fog um, and the idea was to create a symphony of sensations um, that would in some ways emulate the transposition you know from one sense to another of sensations under the influence of a hallucinogen when you see a drum beat um, or you hear a color more recently um, we've been working together with um, indigenous artists from Canada and from Australia to create performative sensory environments that will communicate something of what it is to be on the other side <clears throat> of a treaty what it is to be um, you know an indigenous person um, in uh, the dominant society uh, and communicating something about the pain but also about the other ways of sensing that indigenous communities have so um, these are in a way laboratories like psychology laboratories but they're aesthetic laboratories where we're combining the senses in new kinds of ways and trying to create conditions for cross-cultural um, communication um, so it's that idea of art as experience um, and using the senses to promote that experience can you share um maybe an experience that you've had with a work of art or with a museum space that has been multi-sensory, that, that has been meaningful. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I guess that 
first of all, I would point to our performative sensory environments. Um, I find them wonderfully stimulating, and uh, you know they 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 are created by Chris Salter. Um, they go on tour. Um, one time, uh, one of them ended up in Berlin, um, and you know my job as an anthropologist is to interview people after they've been through one of these um, experiences. They will last for about 20 minutes where you know there are no labels, okay? Um, there are no frames. There's just this swirl of impressions and uh, you know people come out of it making all kinds of free associations. Uh, and what we try and do is, is both find out where it's taken them, but also we use that information to um, actually Really improve the experience, you know, for the next time we do the installation. Um, so that's one, um, you know, experience that um, I think is really key. And another thing that I was thinking about um, was an experience I had at the the Rijksmuseum, um, which was of um, a very interesting project. Uh, they had made a 3D print of Rembrandt's The Jewish Bride. It's a beautiful painting and they had made a 3D print of it. It was bas-relief, it wasn't completely in the round, um, but um, it, you, know, you, could, you could feel the scratchiness of the clothing, you could feel the roundness of the pearls. And so, you know, in that regard, it was a, a lifelike three-dimensional model of a two-dimensional representation. Is this the way to go? Okay, because we could do 3D you know, prints of everything in, in the collection. And to me, um, I wasn't sure because, you know, first of all, Rembrandt was famous for being a sculptor of paint. Okay, he he applied the paint so thick that it was almost three-dimensional already, you know, to begin with. And um, you know, he used his fingers sometimes. So there's that actually that that direct impression of the fingers that is there. And so you know, when there's so much tactile richness to Rembrandt, okay. Have we done that evocative quality of his painting style, an injustice, when we have modeled it in 3D? Okay, should we, um, is that not the way to go? And I think that, you know, um, there'll be so many technological geniuses out there, but that's the way they want to go. Okay, they want to do, they make everything into a 3D uh, printout. And, um, but to me, uh, it would be understanding, you know, the importance of touch to Rembrandt. Okay, that uh, which is only what an art historian can do. Okay, so uh, you know you you need the skill to read the sources to get at um, that kind of information, and there's just no other way to do it. Thank you, David, so much for joining us. This was such a wonderful conversation, and has given me and I think all of our listeners so much to think about moving forward about our experiences in museum spaces and with works of art from a multi-sensory perspective. So thank you so much. Okay, well, absolutely my pleasure. And I think it's so important what you're doing, you know, with this exhibition on the expressive body. And I think that, you know, we have to cultivate our sensory capacities so that we can be as expressive, as communicative as the bodies, uh, the sculptures and the paintings, you know, that you've brought together for the exhibition. This should be the challenge of art, okay, to actually uh, perfect our perceptions. So thank you. This conversation is part of the series Touching Art, Embodied Experiences in Museums. 
produced in conjunction with the Norton Simon Museum's exhibition, The Expressive Body, Memory, Devotion, Desire, 1400-1750, on view October 15, 2021 through March 7, 2022. Additional conversations with Veronica Alvarez, the Wallace Annenberg Director of Community Arts Partnership at CalArts, and Georgina Klieg, Professor of English at UC Berkeley, are available at nortonsimon.org.